Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I'd like to welcome everyone in the audience today and thank you for taking time to be with us as we help public, private, and nonprofit organizations tackle important broadband issues and getting broadband everywhere it needs to be. Uh, this week, we've been talking a lot uh, about Chattanooga's Gigabit Network, as we should, since it's one of the biggest, probably the biggest in the U.S., covering 600 square miles. But um, with all the focus on the Gigabit Internet access, it's easy to overlook the fact that their network is run by EPB, which is Chattanooga's public utility. And uh, furthermore, the network was originally planned and built to address smart grid and energy management issues. Now this, to me anyway, begs the question, can other public utilities mimic Chattanooga? Meaning, can they build a high-speed fiber network to address significant energy and utility management issues and then pivot to provide businesses and individuals uh, with uh, blazing fast broadband services? Indianola Municipal Utilities is one of uh, dozens of public utilities that have done this successfully. The question now, of course, is you know, should your utility be doing the same thing? And if they are, how do they go about getting into uh, the broadband space? Here today to help us address this and other questions is um, Todd Kielkoff, who is the general manager of Indianola Municipal Utilities, which is in Iowa, and he has been um, with IMU actually since the uh, early days of the uh, community's fiber network. So, Todd, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. So, let's jump right in. Um, you folks have been at this for a while. What uh, yeah, what was what was it that got everything started, and uh, and 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 how has the progress been so far? The original plan came about in the uh, late 1990s when the city's cable franchise uh, with Mediacom, uh, what is today Mediacom, was co- going to be expiring, and the city uh, government wanted to look, and its leaders and municipal utility board leaders wanted to find out uh, how the city could could build. Uh, a network that then Mediacom could use, and, and that whole uh, negotiation process failed. But in the meantime, then we had a, a vote, which is required under Iowa law for a municipal utility to begin offering telecommunication services. And that vote passed on about a 55-45 uh, margin. And so a fiber optic ring was built in order to mainly do point-to-point uh communications between all the school buildings, where county seats, we had the county buildings, all the city buildings, all the city utilities, all the pump stations, substations, that type of thing. And uh, and that's where the primary community benefit was going to come from. We did build in some extra capacities in order to serve our highway corridors on the business community. Uh, we just didn't, that was kind of the final phase on, on how to do that. So uh, we started looking at that. Um, in the early 2000s, and by 2005, we uh, brought a private partner in and formed, a, a lack of a better word, a, a public-private partnership to uh, to bring that to our business community where we had fiber, and that was an EPON system. Um, and, of course, that uses a lot more fiber than today's active Ethernet. So we've, we've migrated uh, with that partnership 
to where what we have now is an open access licensing system. We we own the network from the pop to the premise, and then we license our provider to uh, to provide be the ISP and and have the CLEC license for phone and other things like that. And then we actually have a licensing system that's open. Um, that then if another private company wanted to provide different services uh, with our network, that we're able to do that. So. That's kind of the summary of it. Mm -hmm. So if I'm understanding, then, you developed a public-private partnership, but even with the public-private partnership, you uh, have the network open to other private sector companies that want to be on the network. Yes. If if there was a – if a company uh, wanted to – they just have to share the network management of that um, with with our current licensee. Uh, who is MCG of Oskaloosa. And MCG does fiber to the home as a private LLC in Oskaloosa, Iowa, which is uh, just about uh, an hour to our east. And so um, they we're, num- we're customer number 6001, is what I like to say, because mm-hmm. they have a, quite, they have most of the market share in Oskaloosa, so uh, it would just be a shared network management at that point. Mm-hmm. So now there were three distinct stages, I believe, of the network. You have the phase when you guys were de- were delivering services to what I'll call institutional customers, the schools and the government and so forth. There was a phase where you were develop or delivering services to businesses, and then in October of this year, you're going to start delivering services directly to the premises. Is that uh, yes. accurate? The summary. Yes. So, so now, how did those three segments work? Well, we'll get to the third one, obviously, in a little bit because that's projected. But uh, in the beginning, how was that service? I don't know, structured or paid for uh, to, to get everything going. The uh, the original fiber uh, point-to-point system for the schools and, and the public entities, things like that. Um, two-thirds of that was paid for over a ten-year period by those customers. Because mm-hmm. they they were connecting, you know, the, it was just very fiber intensive to go point to point. Uh, so they paid back the utility over a ten year period. Some of them paid up front. Some of them paid over ten years. And those agreements uh, just ended in 2009. So we really only had enough money allocated um, to do what we were doing, and it was an over, primarily an overhead system. Mm-hmm. So it was basically based on that revenue stream that was able to be cost-shared, not knowing what the revenue potential could be from the business community. Uh, you know, it, it did take us about five years because we really didn't have the institutional management um, capacities to understand exactly how to roll this out because it hadn't been done in very many communities. Uh, so we uh, we took our time to figure out exactly how we were going to be able to do it without adding a lot of risk overhead management and things like that. The second phase, we really didn't have to make much of an investment. Um, We just had to figure out the legal structure um, and how to make that happen because we used that other third of the, which was excess fiber that had been run. Um, So there wasn't a lot of overhead costs. I think we were able to do that for about Mm $300,000. And that's had, if you combine those two stages up, it's had a, a very big return on investment for the community. We've been saving our business customers somewhere in the need 
neighborhood of uh, 15 to 20 percent, so they're getting that benefit over commercial phone rates. Um, they've been getting higher broadband speeds than they otherwise would be able to provide. And then, you know, we've got the testimonials of, of our school networks and all that about how they're running, you know, gigabit backbone point-to-point, able to have just one server, one main Internet pipe, IP phone system, things like that. So we've really built that community support up for the third phase along the way by actually doing what we said we could do. Mm-hmm. So that third phase has followed our uh, an ambitious electric underground conversion project that we're doing. And that and it will from here on out. The it's much more affordable to lay that, that conduit in the ground for the fiber when you're already burying electric. Um, so mm-hmm. So that's why so the now- phases have evolved the way they have, and how, and that's how it will be for the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. So to come back to the uh, public-private partnership, how was that relationship with the private sector company um, structured? As in, you know, who owned the network? Who had which primary responsibilities? The original uh, agreement we had was that we were going to treated as a standalone partnership. In other words, uh, they would run it. They would do the operations. We would help contribute capital and management capacities and things like that. But we had to jointly go out and get the money to build the network. We didn't commit the utilities resources um, because, again, we didn't quite know what the revenue potential was and the long-term risk rewards and how it was all going to work. And then what we did was on our as our electric utility, uh, when I became general manager in 2007, uh, we made a, a five-year financial plan and a rate structure that would allow us to be much more ambitious with bigger projects on the underground conversion. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, we said, you know, the electric utility can actually, under Iowa law, the electric utility can build it uh, as we're building the underground and can own it. And then our communications utility that was authorized under Iowa voters could be the licensor to to be that conduit for the private partner. So that be that we took over the network again on the on the facility side mainly because we have access to to capital uh, through our electric utility, mm-hmm. and that's a mix of both taxable bonds and tax exempt bonds. But an electric utility that doesn't have much debt um, as ours does then um, it's just more uh, feasible. Mm-hmm. So that's why we, we changed that partnership role to where they pre, you know, we own point-to-point, and then they're pre-wiring the home um, for for the fiber-to-the-home system, and they take on that risk, of custom, and then they're taking on all the operational risk. They pay us back for a flat fee connection. Okay. But technically the community owns the network. And and what you have done is is devise structures for how to work with the partner and be a partner but still be a community asset. Yes. Okay. And and so we're uh, one of the things that we're doing is um, is really we've got a fairly ambitious. I I see this as a as a four legged stool uh, to make sure that it provides a community benefit. Um, beyond just a, you know a more robust system with more robust services, we also are looking at how to um, make a, a media market you know that we don't have currently for television mm-hmm. because 
those eyeballs, we're a bedroom community out of the Des Moines market, and our media services, television, are all served out of the Des Moines market, which is, you know, a half million plus um, MSA, and we're a town of 15,000. And so our local businesses don't have access to to those eyeballs uh, the way that, that they would like to. So the first leg is create that media market, so that you've got the first leg being the facilities. The second one is people are using those facilities, and they become a media market. The third leg is going to be a, a partners program with our private service partner, where we're able to produce local television commercials. Maybe create a. Uh, we've got a partner that we're looking at doing a uh, smartphone app for local businesses, and really create a, a local business asset to where. Our customers are getting a benefit uh, of that, our commercial customers. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth leg is going to be an economic development program um, with Simpson College, who is a liberal arts college in our community. And we're looking at how do we really cr- create a platform by which um, once we have economies of scale in our market, that their students and entrepreneurs can can really um, learn from that technology and how can they use it to further their education experience. Mm-hmm. So that's the four legs that we kind of see. Then they would. That's how we're going to make this into what we believe to be, hopefully, a model for other communities that want to uh, to get that community support through their public utility in order to in order to get the financing in order to do it because it really takes community support on that first leg where you've got to say we've got to take on the debt in order to um, to do that and you're putting you know your electric rate revenue in our case at risk and sometimes some communities just don't feel like that that's a risk they can take but they've got to see a whole picture of the benefit Right. So, so you, you know, that, that community relationship thing is key. And one of the things you and I talked about in the run-up to the to the show, the show starting was the, the, the politics of it all in the sense of there are, there have been laws di- dictating how a community could go forward since the 90s. And I think it's important that people know about that because there are so many states. I think we're up to 19 states now that have various restrictions. What are the restrictions in Iowa, and then how did you um, go about addressing them with an understanding that your community relationships and community buying was a key part of that scenario? Well, the first the first law in Iowa that you have to clear is, is a vote. Your community has to vote to authorize you to provide telecommunication services, which are spelled out very detailed under Iowa law. And so that that was the first step. Um, the second step is that you the city has to manage their relationship with the utility in the same manner that they manage their relationship with a private company. So in other words, if you already have a cable franchise agreement in your community, then the municipal utility cannot be any more advantageous of a relationship with the city. Mm-hmm. So you have to. So that competitiveness um, argument has been really um, philosophically debated in Iowa. In Iowa, we do have home rule authority for our cities, and so that's why the state has to come in and limit what we can do, um, because otherwise the city, um, city government had virtually unlimited authority in order to 
to implement a telecommunications utility. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so instead of the state granting us authority to do it, they just have to tell us what we can't do. Mm-hmm. And so, what we the way we've managed that is our licensing program. Um, the way we've done it is we just set the rules and regulations up similar to a franchise and say, if you do these things, you can be on the network. And if you want to be a good community partner, you can be on the network as an ISP or a CLEC or, or whatever function you think you want to do. So far, we haven't had any takers to that other than our partner that we have today. Mm-hmm. So that addresses that philosophical debate in our community um, we I found it to be the it resonates. Hello. Hello. We seem to have a uh, disconnect here. Uh, bear with me, ladies and gentlemen. We will get um, we will get Todd right back here. Hold on one second. Great the Fairfield Inn and Suites by Marriott Northflat. This is Sean. How can I help you? Yes, we need room 223, please. All right, just one second. Hello. Todd. We lost you for a second. Yeah, it just went straight to dial tone. I don't know what happened. Ah, all right. Let's try this again. Take two. But we're on a wire line. <laughs> it was not a cellular problem. <laughs> right. Anything can um, happen when you're on somebody else's phone. No so. doubt, no doubt. And let that be a lesson to our listeners. Um, yeah. So, so <laughs> where were we when we uh, we were talking about the, uh, I guess, the licensing arrangement and how that enables you to uh, move forward within the, uh, the the confines of the law but still be able to get done what you need to get done? Yeah. So that that's the first major hurdle is, is to have a license for us was to have – some fairly detailed protections for our customers that a franchise would typically have um, because we were, you know, you're interacting with the private sector. So that's typically, you know, why governments don't always want, or the public sector doesn't always want to have a have a private sector involvement is because of that quality control aspect. Um, so that's how we've addressed it, and and that's gone well. Uh, we are going to have a, a joint headquarters uh, between us at our utility headquarters. That's what's in the vision anyway, is that we formed a uh, partnership there too that allows them to use some of our office space and common areas, and we're planning a, we've got a master facilities plan that shows a a common showroom because we do want to bring in 
energy efficiency and energy management and things like that from our electric utility side. And we want it to be just really a, a true partnership because we also have a lot in our community that believe that the municipal utility can can best deliver uh, high-quality services, um, both electric, water, and telecom. So we're addressing that philosophy, too, which says that if the public owns it, then the public, you should have a one-stop shopping and, and really make things simple for the customer. So that's how we're addressing that through a uh, another facility use agreement with that private partner. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, then and then the 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 next leg, the economic development leg, where we want to interact with our college. There, you know, I think there's a lot of people in our community that that want us to use all available assets in order to make it the best that it can be. And I think we're going to address that. Um, we're addressing that also to say mm-hmm. we know that the the new technologies that we have today aren't going to last forever that there's going to be things replacing it and that we can't do it all. Uh, we can't, we don't want to be raising electric rates in order to keep tabs with the private sector on telecom, for example. Mm-hmm. So we're addressing that by saying, well, we need an R&D arm um, and we want that to be an, an economic development incubator type pro- program. So those are different philosophies with the different partnerships and, and Iowa law is very um flexible to allow us to do that. There's agreements that have to be structured a certain way when you're going to have partnerships with the private sector, but um, with some careful crafting, you can still retain what you want to retain, the best of what you think you can deliver, what your core competencies are as an organization, and then let the private sector um, go out. You can market that to them to say, these are areas that we need. So you can do an RFP. You could do an RFQ process or something like that um, to try to highlight what you're trying to do, and it, you might be surprised as a community who's going to step up to the table. Mm-hmm. Now, even though you weren't directly involved at the very, very beginning, uh, you have been there for a while, do you have some insight as to how the original um, planning went together? And, and just to give it a little bit of context for the audience, in uh, Chattanooga, there initial efforts going toward fiber had to do with studying the economics of running their business, their their utility business, and discovering how much um, damage is done to a community with energy failures. So the idea was to create a fiber network that would address all of those things which led to energy failures, and subsequently that justified the network. I'm truly summarizing here the short version. But do you know what kind of thinking went into your uh, utilities, you know, initial decisions to to go forward with this network. At the at the time, our SCADA systems um, for all the utilities were all radio based, and we were having a lot of problems with that. And so everybody was thinking that if we could get a an underground wired system of some sort, uh, whether it be fiber or or a, a hybrid system that we'd have much more reliable SCADA systems, which would allow us to computerize, and we made some you know, six-figure investments in new automated systems for our sewer department, water department, electric department. And so that took care of the internal support to say, yeah, we need those. And at the time, the Internet was really just becoming 
a necessity for every location that we were that the city and the schools were all having operations. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if we started pricing out what I know they were pricing out what T one lines were gonna cost for every location in order just to go point to point in order to have firewalls and all the things that were evolving back in and really you add up what the cost of all that was going to be on a monthly rate in order to get one megabit speed in between all of our buildings, and it just wasn't going to make any sense. So the the return on the investment really came out of that and got people saying, well, if we can at least, that's going to be our base that we start with, and then see see where it goes from there. you know, you just start looking around your community and saying who needs what and, and what are you paying for now. And uh, we just had a lot of point-to-point in our community that needed to be solved. And they, really the only way to do that effectively was over fiber and and start creating that internal institutional knowledge on how to then expand it out. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things we had to first first say that we had an asset and then say now we've got an underused asset. Right. And then, okay. <laughs> and then figure out that there's value there, and how you're deriving that value. And and we did a cost benefit study um, early on to say what if what if we did phone service for the whole community and cable and all that. Um, you know, the, they did a whole feasibility study, and and that really got people nervous to say, okay, maybe we need to take just one step instead of the whole bite. And so um, it turns out I think to have been a good decision because. We would have been replacing that if we would have built a hybrid system. You know that depth would still be out there, and then we'd be looking at not being able maybe to deploy what we're able to deploy now. Mm-hmm. So there was um, some definitely some good insights and decisions, but the bottom line seems to be that it was community driven. In other words, there yeah. were specific utility needs, and then that created the asset. And then yeah. the asset being the network. And then once people say, okay, well, now we have this asset, well, what else can we do? And then, then everything starts to, to flow. Mm-hmm. Now, and and um, certainly having champions in your community that, that people believe their spiel as to why that's going to be a benefit to your community is, is key. So, the mess, you know, you, yes, you got to do the, the basics to have your message, and then you got to find the messengers um, to carry that forward. Okay, that's uh, that's very interesting. Now let me run another scenario by you. Can tell me again if this uh, makes sense. So if you say I'm, you know, hypothetical community B that wants to, you know, is thinking about doing a uh, network. Um, if you look at doing a network, say, to address uh, providing services to businesses or providing uh, triple play to consumers, there's a cost associated with that. And for many communities, they find this to be a high cost. On the flip yes. side, though, if I build a network, say, to meet a utility need, and the utility by default covers all of the community geographically, if I mm-hmm. build the network to reach all of the, you know, the points of where, you know, energy management takes place uh, within that community, don't I, in essence, um, lower the cost, or maybe a better way to describe it is, don't I come in with a better cost for addressing Internet access needs because um, 
I've already built an infrastructure, and now all I'm doing is just expanding an infrastructure rather than building it from the ground up to deal with connecting businesses or you know providing services to homes. Yeah, your your, your highest cost is just getting along the curb. You know mm-hmm. that's that, and it depends on if you got an overhead system or an underground, but it's definitely your backbone, uh, regardless of whether you're going to use it for utility needs um, or or whether you're going to, in terms of electric, um, or what, you know, connect, just getting it there is, is by far your highest expense mm-hmm. uh, on a fixed cost basis. Uh, right. You know, you're, it, you're going to borrow money and it's going to be 10 or 15 years that you're going to have to pay that. And, you know, your electric utility is, in, in our case, is looking ahead at the future where we, we haven't said exactly how we're going to do that yet. Um, but when we go to do it, it's going to be a, our energy efficiency side is going to be um, have a lower threshold on payback because we've, you know, the consumer we've already invested the money, so um, the commercial service can can help get the energy efficiency into the home mm-hmm. much more effectively. Is kind of how we're looking at it. Some communities it's going to be the other way around where they say, yeah, we, you know, we want to do uh, air conditioner controls or swimming pool controls. Certainly, if you look at California, Arizona, down the south, Florida, Texas, they've got you know a more pronounced load profile that can be managed. That can have some real payback for the community uh, on the electric side uh, that, that maybe we don't have. So then, when they go to piggyback on the service for telecom, they've uh, that's a lower threshold. So mm-hmm. it, it just a lot of that just depends on your load profile and your community. Mm-hmm. As so to now, which is going to go first, chicken or the egg? Uh, right, and we have a lot of those, I think, along the way of dealing with broadband in, in a lot of communities. How does one go about finding, or recruiting, or inspiring the right kinds of champions? Well, um, you know, I, you certainly need a, a business community, economic development people to come forward first. That's an easy way of doing it is to find where they've had issues. I know there's uh, there's some consultants out there that we've talked to that consult with communities about their needs and, and lack thereof, lack of access, um, things like that. And so I think economic development professionals are highly attuned to, that there are communities now getting written off of site selection um, early on in the process because they can't provide the gigabit service um, that the business might want or 100 meg service or something like that, especially if they want it from more than one source. So I think that's always a, a good place to start is with those economic development professionals to say, what do you have, what do we have um, that we don't know that we have, uh, and then really do your research to say, okay, can we get what what we need? Because they'll help then discover some of your business champions. <clears throat> Certainly some consumer groups. Um, I don't know, the online community starting some sort of, you know, local Facebook uh, presence or something along those lines might help in order to, to do that. We've got a program, Connected Nation. I'm on the Iowa's. Connect Iowa Advisory Board and Connected Nation is who they're associated with, and they're out um, trying to assess communities and they're trying to put together local committees 
of people that are really there's an assessment process that they use um, that's on their website um, that you can enroll in that say, what do we have, how do we use broadband in our community? And then they're trying to develop a process by which um, those champions emerge as an organized group at the end of it, that they say, here's where we're Here's where our strengths are. Here's where our weaknesses are as a community, whether it be adoption or whether it be facilities. So th there, there are some processes that have come out um, that were stimulus fu grant funded for broadband. Um, that really they're trying to build that into a community betterment tool. Mm -hmm. Now, um I'm going to be doing a national survey of economic development professionals soon. One of the questions I expect to ask this year will be, you know, how do you manage or not manage, but how do you measure the economic development impact of broadband? Because this seems to be the great elusive beast. No one really knows, you know, how do you do it? How do you quantify it? People scratch their head, give up in frustration. How do you tackle the um, the issue. I mean, do you quantify it, or do you see enough qualitative value that no one really presses you for the quantitative part? We will be the. Uh, I think it's early on enough for in the in the broadband marketplace that um, we'll be the first to offer out of the Des Moines metro area 25 megabit up and down, going up to 100 affordably. And so that differentiates, you know, we're going to be so different as a community because we're also one of the few uh, municipal electric utilities in the Des Moines metro market. The, for my community, all just being different is an economic advantage. That is, it's a workforce recruitment tool as well as a telecommuting tool because two-thirds of our workforce commutes to the Des Moines metro area to work every day. And so we're, we as a community are always looking for that, something to make us different than surrounding communities that are the same size and, and things like that. Mm -hmm. I do have some champions in our business community that say they wouldn't be in Indianola without our service being affordable at the speeds that it is from a commercial standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, we have a couple that, that are technology-based that um, – and then we have some others that just say, look what we save um, by doing that. So kind of the combination of that is what's really allowed us to go forward, um, if that answers the question. Well, no, no, I, I see your point. I mean, basically, you, you establish certain criteria, I guess, for success. And I think that probably is a large part of the whole discussion slash argument is that old school folks only see one set of parameters. You know, we spent this much, did we make this much? You know, has our right. DNP gone up? Has our whatever, whatever? And it's all a very mathematical, you know, equation. Okay, fine, that has worked in the past, but you're dealing with a technology that's kind of hard to quantify and you're having impacts that are hard to quantify. So maybe it makes sense to change the way we view economic development success. Yeah, I did see, and there, someone's produced uh, some study, and I think it was through Connected Nation or something like that, where they've tried to say they've looked at the uh, GNP growth, of lack of a better word, personal income growth in communities that have superior. They've tried to rate, you know, your your access to broadband, and then tried to say, okay, over the last five years, 
which communities have done better or worse on average, mm-hmm. and and tried to do just a kind of a kind of a scaled approach, which is probably to me the way that if we look where we're going to be ten years from now. Um, trying to measure that, that's probably how it's just going to have to be. Did your community grow? To, you know, and if not, you might not be able to pinpoint that broadband was your issue, but if, if enough communities have leapt ahead, whether it be through wireless or however they did it, um, if, if enough, then then I think you're really going to be able to say, yeah, this really made a difference. Mm-hmm. So um, the first step is connecting the Connected Nation program and, and Connect Iowa in particular are trying to map out exactly what that baseline data is. What mm-hmm. what did you have today? <laughs> you know, because that's, that, that's an elusive baseline that you have to say is that if 80% of the, your workforce only has one megabit to three megabit speeds and that's going to be what you compare to the communities that are doing five, ten, 25, 100, 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to dapple on the uh, or uh, touch on the um, political aspect one more time here. So we we see how you did the planning, uh, developed the champions, and so forth. How how onerous was the the voting aspect? And I and I bring this up because, say for example, if I look at uh, Longmont. Uh, Colorado, or I look at Monticello, Minnesota, in both of these cases, the incumbents spent an inordinate amount of money to kill the referendum. So it's yeah. kind of like, and that, oh, that happened, <laughs> Sorry, that happened in a lot of Iowa communities, too. So that still is a, is a problem, is that they have to face a um, an overwhelming amount of money uh, in, in a campaign in a small market that they've got to somehow rise above and generate the votes in favor of the of the of the project. Yes. How are you guys able to do that? I mean, uh, or how are other communities able to do that? Because it's always a David versus Goliath situation. Is it the message? It's clearly not the money, because I'm sure that most communities are outspent, you know, a hundred to one. Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with the uh, number one. I think it's harder now. Than it was in the early, you know, in the mid '90s and late '90s. It seemed to me that there was a lot of successes um, that happened, and then because maybe the resources weren't spent to the extent that they are today. Mm-hmm. That's my general impression that when a community in the last 10 years has tried to do this, um, there's a whole lot more coming at you than than there was early on. Because early on, I think it was thought of well, you know. The smaller communities in general maybe weren't a market that people, the incumbents thought they needed to protect. Mm-hmm. And so, but all of a sudden that happened. And I think you've just got to have your strategic plan in place before that election that says, this is what it's going to look like. This is how we're going to do it. We know that, you know, whether you start off with focus groups, your champions have focus groups that say, we know we're going to have a withering process. We know we're going to, and we've done some research that say these are the top five arguments, and so we have to have a strategic plan that addresses those top five arguments. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have to, you know, go out and collect some money um, to try to show where we can have information available and, and disseminate that. Certainly, though, now that the that we have social media and we have the internet, and um, and a lot of things that are more 
incorporated into our society, I think a community has a better chance uh, than maybe we did in in Iowa, at least in the 2000 to 2005 period, when when we weren't such an interconnected world. So, and certainly, you, you know, if people are using the internet and they're frustrated with their incumbent, then and they want their community to take them forward, and you have a couple champions that really know how to use social media, I think you can get a lot done in a hurry with the people who are going to go out and vote on that subject. Mm-hmm. Because I think turnout is still always low in those type of of elections. You look at, you know. 15% turnout, 10% turnout. So if you can get your core base together and just treat it like you would a school bond proposal or or anything else, then you probably got a better chance. But I do think, you, you know, I'm just a big proponent of going in with a, a plan that addresses known problems. Don't wait until the campaign to find out what's the hot-button issue with your municipal utilities starting to provide those services. If and, and certainly the how you're going to address the private sector involvement, I think that is probably universal. Mm, okay. Now, one of the other things uh, we talked about sort of pre-show was this idea of communities banding together. Mm-hmm. How do you or how have you seen that work in Iowa, and how could other communities uh, emulate that? Well, certainly your uh, your your head-in facilities, the way these Everything you have, you know, you have aggregator suppliers now for television. We have um, ISP in a box services that you can get from from various providers. Um, a community doesn't have to think that they have to go out at this alone if they don't want to go out alone. If you've got some neighbors out there, uh, neighboring communities that want to do this together, then you can band your resources. Um, together and that's been done successfully in Iowa uh, up in northwest Iowa there are communities that, that when they originally did it they they've done it that way so they could share the talent um, you don't have much, as much of a management risk and then on the flip side we had some unsuccessful attempts um, by a private company that wanted to come in and manage networks for, for different communities and they tried to do blanket elections all during one cycle which actually allowed the incumbents then to attack everybody at once on a on a broader media spectrum out of the Des Moines market mm-hmm. um and pinpoint these four or five I can't remember how many communities um even though <laughs> even though they were going to be uh, somewhat privately managed mm-hmm. so you've got to, and and those failed and and so your plus side you you know you you could do it especially if you're not in a major media market where you're going to make it costly for that incumbent to come into multiple communities and address local issues. On the on the flip side, if you try to do too big and too big of an urban area, you just made it easier to for the radio waves and the television waves to reach everybody. So mm. those are those are the two experiences that I've had. Interesting. I, I uh, had never I had never thought about that because I think. Historically, a lot of these referendum issues have been fought, you know, alone, and one brave community goes out, and then it gets kind of ugly, and then everybody else kind of goes, well, maybe we don't want to do that. This idea of staggering yourself, you know, staggering the effort, to me, that makes a lot of sense. You know, that's like uh, a kind of a um, reverse divide and conquer. (laughs) Yeah. And if I, you know, and the example is for for Indianola, um, 
there's a community that has a municipal, the other community in central Iowa that has a municipal electric as part of the Des Moines metro is Carlisle, and they're a town of, I'm going to say, 3,500 to 5,000. And, you know, probably if Carlisle had an election today in Indianola, we were able to say, here's your business model, here's how we're going to do it, you can be a partner with us, and our private partner wants to come into Carlisle. You know, that would be a tougher for Mediacom and CenturyLink to just go after Carlisle voters. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, Carlisle would look at us as being a Warren County provider. Um, we're, we've addressed the private sector argument, which is prevail, you know, a prevailing thing in our area. And that would probably an easy, be an easier vote at this time than when they were trying to do it as part of a, a bigger system. So hmm. you just never I like that. Yeah. So now what's next? You guys are getting ready for service to the home, and I understand what it's going to be, 100 uh, megabits uh, symmetrical? Yep, up to 100. Um, we're starting, our base package is uh, 99.95, gets 25.25 up and down with uh, 40 of the most popular, or excuse me, 105 of the most popular uh, digital television stations, that's Internet Protocol Television, oh. and then unlimited local calls. And so then if you want to go to 100 megabit, um, it's $10 a month extra. There's different packages for the television because our our partner, MCG, uh, has their own head in, so they can choose how to bundle, which is which is nice. And mm-hmm. so we, uh, we're, gonna, we're taking sign-ups now in our first 1,500 homes out of uh, roughly 5,000. And then we're going to be backfilling where we have some conduit put in, but we didn't put in fiber um, yet because that was along the way we've kind of planned for expansion. And then we'll be doing another major electric underground project in two years where we're going to then be able to hit another 15 or so hundred homes. And then we just got to slowly build it out um, as we go along. So we're excited to finally be able to provide these residential services that were envisioned all the way back in 1999. <laughs> really started playing them for it in 2005 and six, but um, yeah, the, uh, we're glad that we've been able to do it at our own pace uh, because financially, we've just been able to make it work a whole lot better at that price range. So, so now, our sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say that the one thing that's changed really is the uh, we've got, we're going from an from the pond system to the active ethernet which really you know is the future proof way of doing this so when 1 gigabit needs to be standard it's just a matter of changing electronics at the cabinet in the neighborhood and at the house so mm-hmm. you know it's just mu- so much more affordable uh, to just get start there and do that and really 2 years ago that was a decision that was somewhat um, we had to make that consciously where now i think people would Chattanooga has led the way to show that that's a viable technology and Mm-hmm. That was that was timely that they made that investment for us. Right now, so the home, so the initial base home package is ninety nine dollars a month, twenty five megabits symmetrical, selection of premium channels and voice. Yes, is that right? Okay. Now, is, is it possible to buy internet access alone? Yes. Okay. Or uh, a single a single high speed internet is thirty nine ninety five, and that's twenty five twenty five. So for the for the people that are wanting to cut their cords and just use over the air TV, um, that's going to be an affordable option. But the uh, the double play for high speed phone and internet is only or yeah tel- uh, 
telephone and high speed internet at twenty five twenty five is only forty nine ninety five. Wow. So so that's gonna be the package, you know, it's kinda of hard not to have a landline, the benefits of a landline for only ten bucks a month. But then if and again, if you want to be at a hundred and hundred with a local phone, then you're you're at fifty nine ninety five. So that that is highly competitive, we think. Mm-hmm. And and I'm sure you guys are out doing you know your necessary marketing and feedback gathering and everything else to make sure that uh, that you stay on top of the on top of the curve. Now, you know you mentioned the um, you know you have the over you have the open access network. You've got one primary provider. Other providers don't seem to be interested. What is it that? keeps the pricing competitive? Is it the fact that there are other com- uh, competitors outside of the um, IMU's service? And, and I bring that up because people, some some articles have said if you if you have a small town and the community owns a network, and even, if, even if they have it be open access, they're only going to find one player that's willing to compete or to to be on yeah. the network. So if you yeah. do that, where's the competition then that drives or keeps prices, you know, affordable? Well, you know, our uh, our whole goal is to show that that we're just doing this at cost in order to be a benefit to the community. Mm-hmm. That's that's our overriding goal is to make our debt service payments, pay for our overhead, and you know, have economies of scale, and then be able to bring in the energy efficiency. But we just—that's uh, been our overriding philosophy—is if we went in and tried to become, a, you know, some sort of a pricing monopoly, that then we're not delivering that value to the community, and then we're just another cable provider. Mm-hmm. And that's what we don't want to be. Um, that's not to say that we're always going to be able to be this affordable. It, it just depends on. Um, how many times we have to go in and bore new lines in um, underground without being with the electric, because that's where it's going to get really expensive. So, How do you mean? Well, right now, you know, we're boring. It's just, you know, you're getting it for $5 a foot on your boring when you're with an electric bore that's, all, that's bigger and that machine's out there, and so the electric is your primary reason, so... You're getting, you know, a twelve-dollar bore for five dollars. So when you have to pay ten or twelve dollars for that bore, um, because the electric's already underground in places, or you're not going to get there for ten years, and people demand that we have it, then it's going to be a little bit harder to uh, to stay at that price. But you know, you, you're just going to have to build in like we do with electric, and say, well, if everybody wants this, this is what it's going to take. It's going to take a ten-dollar. Uh, price increase or something like that. Mm-hmm. But I think, it, you know, we just have that philosophy about all of our utilities is that we want long-term viability and we'll, we'll keep doing strategic plans with cost estimates on what it's going to take to do these things. And then the community just has to come along. But, the you know, I think you can get that support if you haven't gouged along the way. Right, and, right. And build up big fund balances without any plans. Uh, on what you're going to use those for. It's all about taking care of your your customers along the way. And I would also imagine that, you know, coming back to your roots, you know, having developed this thing to to service certain institutions and the utility itself, that there will always be that baseline benefit, which is, you know, which justifies the network's existence. And so as long as you're 
you know, just find the network's expenses, you're not really incurring massive debt. And again, you know, the being a public-owned entity serving the public interest sort of again, you know, has its other impact on keeping prices manageable. Yes, I think that you're just not building in those extra layers um, if you're always scrapping. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, I, my philosophy is, is that if we're doing it right, um, then we're being asked to do more than what we can deliver at any point in time, and people are willing to pay for the service that they value. A lot of times they just have to see that they value, you know, see what that service is to determine that they value it. And so in our case, uh for this phase one of this residential, we certainly want people to think they're getting a dollar return based on avoided cost and a benefit return of, of that staying local, and that they're seeing that that local is being piggybacked on what we're able to provide to schools, county, Simpson College, their local institutions to keep other rates affordable. So then right. they, you know, you start building your moat that way. Over and when you're looking at it over a five to ten year period, then when you have to do price increases, your moat is big enough that people are willing to uh, to allow that to continue. Mm-hmm. Now, I wrote about um, in, uh, utilities using fiber and broadband uh, as a way to support uh, meter reading and then eventually, you know, like a greater emphasis on energy management, but it seemed mm-hmm. like there was a lot of resistance among utility companies, and particularly private utility companies, not wanting to invest in the certain technologies because they were, worry about, they were worrying about uh, obsolescence, because the, op- yeah. the, the, the stuff that was being built for these purposes were by small companies, they were proprietary technology, and people didn't want to get caught into a situation where the utility invests and then it now owns equipment that either the company's gone out of business or it's obsolete, and the company that they bought it from can't afford to upgrade it. Are yeah. those issues still at play among utilities? Not as much. The major metering companies um, have put in Ethernet modules, and you know their collector systems and things like that are, if you do a radio and you don't go Ethernet to the house, um, you can still have collector systems throughout your community on your backbone and do radio read metering. So they've really allowed you to take a more evolutionary approach, and they're your major companies that you would want. Historically, you've got a relationship with you. You've under, you know they've tested their equipment; it's been field tested now. So we feel pretty good. We've we have radio read meters in throughout our community now, um, and we can read on our laptop in a, in a couple of days like 85% of the meters. So, but if we wanted to fully automate that, um, then we could go ahead and put collectors in on that fiber backbone if we chose to do it that way. Certainly by the time um, we want to do the uh, hourly readings or time of use readings or things like that using Ethernet, that's, and over our fiber system, that's, just going to be standard practice. So mm-hmm. I think you've, really it's just been the last couple of years, though, that I've felt comfortable saying that we can have a, a five- to ten-year strategy that says, yeah, you know, that that's a viable strategic option for us. As we go to replace our radio read meters, you know, we'll probably be starting that again here in about four or five years. Mm-hmm. Interesting indeed. So we've got, uh, oh, about three, four minutes left. If you were to summarize, you know, the the top three or maybe the top two things that 
a community should do to leverage its public utility as maybe the driver for a broadband project, what would those two or three things be? I, I think the economic development impact and trends and, and demonstrating that you have done the research and, and followed what where things are going with site selectors and, and get your annual evidence if you have any in your community where you lost a prospect or anything like that. Um, I think the, that that's key to show that the, that there's that this isn't an issue that's going to go away. It's not an issue for especially if you, for a community that has lack of access um, to broadband. The, the just the wholesale delivery options. Once you have a retail plan, um, the wholesale operations will will likely bring you benefits because in five or ten years. Um, I think most professionals in the field will tell you that it's going to be neither or. It's either you've got either a site has enough access to for your typical home, you know, your typical office building, or it doesn't because mm -hmm. the broadband needs are only going up, and it's a geometric scale. Uh, well, you know, what used to be acceptable just isn't today, and that's I think the key is to do that research and then. And then do a strategic plan that says this is, you know, create your why you would want to do it. Start with the whys, and then um, and then figure out the why nots, and then plan on on trying to address those before um, you take it too far into the utility system. Because the electric world was built on research, development, implement, test, <laughs> lots mm -hmm. lots of that that same philosophy. You know, wasn't built on the model of we want to build a swimming pool, you know. Right. So you got you got to think if you're going to leverage a utility board's assets, you got to play within the uh, play within the knowledge based systems that exist there, and and recognize that there's strengths and weaknesses of that. Right. So, but but in the end, you know, a good five to ten year plan that shows you did your research and 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 all that, I think, goes a longer way if you're going to leverage a, a local utility. Gotcha. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Well, I think that we've, uh, you know, we've covered a lot here in a, in a short period of time, and uh, I, I think, I, you know, it'd be good for us, both the, the the show and also communities in general, to really take a, a closer look at what their public utility can offer and how to maximize that um, that utility as an asset and and their ability to to bring broadband to bear here. Uh, so, uh, Todd, you know, I want to thank you for for being on the show, for all of your, you know, all of your insights here. You know, I'll probably call you again someday, either be on the show or for a, an article or whatever. But you know, definitely thanks for today's contribution. This has helped a lot. Well, I've, I've enjoyed it. So, thank you for the uh, opportunity to showcase our community. Sure, not a problem. And we'll be, you know, learning more. Good luck in October, and let's see what that uh, what that brings forth. Okay. Thank and, you. Uh, and to our audience, thank you very much for uh, being with us again today. We really, really appreciate it. And also many thanks to our sponsor, Team Fischl, which is a um, you know major uh, network building organization. They have done some great work. We'll continue to do great work. Uh, you don't see them, but you got to have them. So uh, thanks to, for their uh, contribution as sponsors for our show. And everyone else, we will talk again soon. Have a great day.